I'm Larissa, and I want to help you find the best strategy for communicating the magic and wonder of your jewelry brand so you can thrive by doing what you love and filling the world with beauty and creativity. Welcome to the Joy Joya Jewelry Marketing Podcast. This is episode 21, and today I'll be sharing an interview I did with Nan Lung Palmer, the owner of Facets, a business-to-business consulting agency for both emerging jewelry designers and established jewelry companies. Before starting her consulting business in 2016, Nan spent nearly two decades working for big names like Macy's, Finley Fine Jewelry, David Yurman, and other nationally recognized designers. Now she helps brands fine-tune their merchandising strategies and guide product development for growth and success. Nan serves as the president in Colorado for the Women's Jewelry Association, and she's a diamond and color stone graduate of GIA with a bachelor's of science degree in merchandising management from the Fashion Institute of Technology. If all that hasn't impressed you yet, then you'll just have to listen to the interview to be blown away by her knowledge. In this episode, we discuss topics like how should an indie designer versus a larger jewelry brand approach product development and merchandising? What types of information and data can a jewelry brand use to guide product development? What role do merchandising and product development play in a jewelry brand's branding and marketing strategies? When's the right time for a jewelry brand to focus on merchandising and product development? When's the right time for a jewelry brand to work with a merchandising or product development consultant? And how should a brand go about choosing the right consultant? Without further ado, here's my interview with Nan. So Nan, what drew you to the jewelry industry? How did you first get started in the industry? And what's the journey that ultimately led you to consulting? It's interesting because I think my passion for jewelry started actually at a very young age. Um, I wasn't an individual that, you know, kind of had family that was involved in the jewelry industry. I really fell into it, but I've always had a passion for it ever since growing up as a little girl and watching my mom get ready for work and watching her put on all of her accessories or jewelry. So it, it really stemmed from there. And uh, I, I was actually born in Hong Kong. So uh, watching a, a mom that uh, who had three kids getting ready for work was always very empowering to me. And I loved uh, how she looked with all of her jewels. But fast forward to um, when I went to college, I studied at the Fashion Institute of Technology. I had originally wanted to be a fashion designer, but having Asian parents, that didn't really go well with them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, so I decided to go actually to the business route um, or start in the business route, which today I'm still very fortunate that I did do that. So I studied fashion merchandising. Um, I did a lot of different internships while I was in college, definitely more fashion related. I didn't get into jewelry at that point yet, but it was after college um, that was when I first started working for Finley Fine, Finley Fine Jewelry, which at the time, this was when Burdines and Robinson May still existed. It was before the big federated merger, which mm-hmm. probably ages me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but this was uh, pre Macy's taking over, federated taking over May Company. My first role was really to manage the inventory for over 800 store locations. Um, and Finley at the time, basically what happened is when you walk into, say, Robinson May, you know, you'll see the jewelry counter, but that jewelry counter doesn't belong to Robinson. 
wasn't made. It actually belonged to Finley. And Finley managed all of these different department store locations, but just specifically in jewelry. So Mm -hmm. I got my start in the business uh, side, um, working with numbers, which I know, oh, boring. So, so (laughs) snooze fest, right? Um, But it's like I said, I'm so fortunate to have started um, in the more analytical side of the business because as a um, successful buyer or product developer, you really need to understand the ins and outs, um, your balance sheet, how much money you have, how much inventory, how do you manage that inventory without being, you know, over or under, um, literally down to the dollar uh, when you're managing, you know, millions and millions uh, worth of inventory. So so that's kind of where I got started. And from there, I, I really worked my way through working for a variety of different retailers, but also in different capacity. Finley was, of course, a big company. Um, I, I then moved to, I actually dipped, I got my hands into men's fashion for about like two years uh, in mm-hmm. between <laughs> that time. I realized, you know what, jewelry is my real passion. So right. um, I went to work for Macy's and during that time, um, uh, I was, I, I played different roles. I was um, buyers for, I was a buyer for a couple of years. I was a planner for a couple of years, but always staying within the fine jewelry capacity, um, working with vendors to develop uh, cohesive collections um, and making sure that we're profitable, uh, launching things like chocolate diamonds, um, which was, it's just funny how marketing plays a role because when you think about chocolate diamonds, it's really just a very tainted Mm -hmm, (laughs) color diamond, but, uh, you know, it was, one of my most um, treasured experience working for such a big retailer, um, learning my ropes um, through those uh, through the channels. Then eventually, I uh, went into the luxury sector of the industry, working for David Yerman specifically within the men's and timepiece department, working very closely with their son Evan Yerman, developing collections again. And at the time, I was a retail buyer, which it was a very pivotal moment in the company because at that time we had just started the retail side because the Yermans uh, was always popular when you walk into, say, a Bloomingdale's or a Saks. They were definitely a large percent of their business was in the wholesale sector. And uh, we launched the jewelry, uh, the retail uh, sector, which was extremely profitable because now all of your margins are extra healthy. <laughs> so you're just uh, directly taking the profit from that. So um, really just working again, working my way through to the point where I was prepping the Yermans for big board meetings, their investors. So um, utilizing the skills that I've learned understanding the numbers and understanding, you know, margins and profits really have helped propel me in my career because it's good to be creative. And I think all of us has that creative side of us, but we really need get buttoned up, understand the, the data, uh, the historical data and numbers behind what we do. So how did I get into consulting? Um, this is a bit personal. Um, we lived in New York City for many years, my husband and I, and we always said that, you know, when we have kids, we're going to move out of New York City. Mm-hmm. So that just got moved up a lot faster than we had anticipated. <laughs> um, after the birth of our second son, we decided to move out. And the 
connection there is that my husband was uh, originally from Colorado. And after visiting here for so many years, I really fell in love with the weather. Despite what everybody thinks, it actually doesn't snow a lot here. Really Mm -hmm. depends on where you live. I can wear shorts in the middle of winter sometimes because it it warms up quite a bit during the day. Mm -hmm. So um, so yeah, after our second son was born, uh, we decided to move out. But that kind of left a avoid for me in the professional sense, because uh, there's not a lot of, there's really no buying office out in Colorado, definitely not in such a niche industry like jewelry. Right. Well, what am I going to do? There's some major players in, in Colorado, like Todd Reed, for example. Another one was John Atencio. Um, there's uh, Shane & Co., which is a big jewelry chain um, operation uh, located here, right here in Colorado. But I started working for John Atencio when I moved here as a director of e-commerce and wholesale. So really managing both sides of the business, developing online specials and really driving their wholesale sector of the business. But after about a year, I decided I was quite honestly just felt like I was working, overworking to the point where the balance, you know, the scale between work and life was getting a little bit out of hand. So I decided, you know what, I, I had started an LLC when I first moved to Colorado in 2015 as kind of a backup plan um, if I didn't find any jobs that I like. So I decided, you know what, I've always given 150% to any of my employers that I've worked for over the last 17 years. And I think if I invest in myself. I know that I can do this, you know, it might just take a little while, but I decided to take the plunge because I saw the value in obviously keeping my career going, but also, you know, family time is really important to me. So I wanted to, to be able to do both. Um, I know it's hard to have everything, but I wanted to find a better balance. So Mm -hmm. that's why I decided to officially start, um, my company was uh, uh, incorporated in 2015, but I really started in 2016 working as a consultant. A few things kind of stood out to me as you were talking. Uh, so one thing you mentioned that you originally had wanted to go to school for design rather than the business development side of things. Right. Do you find that your interest in design and that passion for design makes its way into the work that you do? Are you actually advising clients on design when it comes to developing their collections or is it coming from a purely analytical stance? I think it's, well, in in terms of my creativity coming out, yes, every single day. Um, It really depends on um, who the client is, which I know that's one of the questions that you'll be asking me. But it really depends on the situation. You know, if uh, I'm working with an emerging, emerging, emerging new designer, there might be definitely more creativity involved in that. And also one of the things that I see is if you're involved with being creative just all day, every day, you get burnt out. Just like if I'm in numbers all day, every day, if I'm putting my nose in my Excel spreadsheet and doing formulas and building macros, it's like you get inundated, you get burnt out. So I I think um, being successful in what you do, it's a a mix of both. Some days it might be more creative and some days it might Mm -hmm. be more analytical. But, you know, I think this is where you kind of become a chameleon and and just morph into what is the most important thing that you're working on that day. And how do you steer that to your benefit? That kind of leads me into my next question very nicely, because you mentioned that if you're working with an indie uh, designer, there might be a little more creativity involved. So I'm curious, too, with all the background that you had working for kind of these larger 
brands like David Yurman. What's the difference between consulting for a major brand versus an indie designer? I'd like to know more about your process with working with both and what kind of specialized needs um, do each of those have? It's a great question because I can't tell you. A lot of people, especially even uh, some of my industry colleagues, kind of get confused as to it's like, well, what what is it that you do exactly? <laughs> right. So it's a wonderful question. You know, as since my background isn't in buying and merchandising, just to kind of break it down in a percentage, I would say uh, right now, as it stands, eighty percent of my clients are big retailers. Um, I would say upwards of you know, $10 million on an annual basis in retail sales to maybe like 30 or $40 million. And then about 20% of my client base are independent, new or emerging designers. When I first started my business in 2016, it was almost the other way around the ratio. I had a lot more new designers I was dealing with than, than, big, um, than big companies. And now that I've been in my business for almost three years, you know, I find that with what I can offer in my experience, I'm definitely better suited for the larger companies. And for the larger companies, you know, um, since my background is in planning and, and merchandising, I really focus on their analytics. Basically, I'm the person that goes into the weeds, you know, like really going through deep dives of their business, whether it's the last six months, the last year or even the last three years to really develop uh, a presentation. I mean, I'm talking about pie charts, graphs, um, really drilling down to the nitty gritty of their business where I can present to them after contracting with them for, you know, anywhere from three to six months and say to them, hey, you guys have been really underperforming in your accessory categories. You should really be focusing on your bracelets bracelets, and specifically in wrap bracelets because that's the area that you are really trending on and obviously catching up on the train, marrying that with what's going on out there in the industry as well is really important. So back to a little bit about what you said with data, it's important to incorporate data, incorporate data, but I also marry that with trend. What's going on out there in industry? You know, like what, what's going on out there in the fashion world? Cause that distills into the jewelry industry, of course. What are the colors that are really hot this year? So all those things get, um, you know, it's, it's part uh, your gut, I would say, and it's also so uh, a lot of it is sales history and data, which a lot of my bigger clients have a lot of, and mm -hmm. they're not necessarily looking at it on the level that I'm looking at it to provide insights and strategies uh, to help make their performance better. For the smaller designers, um, which is right now a smaller percent, and that's kind of how I want to build my business going forward. I offer more general consulting and I do a lot of customized um, strategies for them. So it depends on where they are. I mean, I have designers that are coming to me where they don't have even a line sheet to designers that have line sheets, but might need help with pulling in a more cohesive collection. You know, do I have, you know, like I, what, what I mentioned before, if you're a creative mind and mind and soul, you know, just making jewelry all day or designing all day, you might not see the bigger picture. And that's where I come in to really help distill, you know, because sometimes designers think like, oh, I need to make, you know, 50 SKUs for this collection. I'm like, no, less is more, you know, and mm -hmm. how do we drill down from there? How do we edit your assortment to grow it? Um, let's look at your pricing. 
So that's another thing that I always see is that designers are almost afraid to pay themselves, which I'm like, that is the number one rule. Always pay yourself um, because it's not viable. It's not scalable if you don't pay yourself. And, you know, it's, it's, you should get rewarded for the work that you've done. Um, it's, you know, if you have a passion, which is making jewelry or designing jewelry, I would say it's my sound harsh, but it's, it's a hobby. If you're not making money, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's not worth it. So, so with my smaller designers really focus in on, focus in on their pricing, making sure that their margin is healthy. So they get paid in addition to that, preparing them to sell to re- uh, retailers or wholesale sellers. Um, sorry, I meant retailers um, to sell to retailers, making sure they're ready for open the buys. If they're preparing themselves for a trade show, whether it's their first time or this is their sixth, uh, sixth time, making sure that they are ready to be in front of the buyer, uh, making sure that the collection is concise and making sure they're doing all the preparation prior to that, because you can't just expect to go to a trade show these days, open shop and people are going to come come up and talk to you. So we have to do a lot of the legwork. I also provide them with customized um, target lists. So whether they're in one retailer right now or in 10, really, I really work closely together with them to come up with additional stores that they can prospect to, to make Mm -hmm. sure they're continuing to to grow their business. What types of data do you use to help you um, make these decisions? Like what are the sources of this data? So for the bigger companies, for the smaller designers, there's really not a lot of data because you got to have, you know, you got to have to be in business for at least, I would say, two to three years and have a pretty robust amount of historical data. But for my bigger clients, um, the guys that are $5 million or more in sales annually, I actually, depending on who they are, I get access. Uh, For example, one of my clients do business with Macy's, uh, which Macy's has over 500 locations, variety of different vendors, departments, stylings. So I actually have have a direct login to the Macy's portal to extract the information and then from there manipulate the information and provide my client with uh, a summary, um, mm-hmm. whether it's a monthly or quarterly or seasonally, usually all three of those. And then also um, when they have big meetings with uh, Macy's, you know, for market or at JCK, I present a whole um, presentation for them so that they look good in front of the buyers because I'm sure you you've seen is that our industry is shrinking, you know, on Bloomberg, just even last week, 400 store close within one week between Gap, Victoria's Secret, and JCPenney. So even though they're fashion brands, it really affects, again, the landscape of the jewelry industry. And we have to be faster, more responsive and be prepared. You know, the days of you know, if you're a jewelry manufacturer, the days of sitting back and letting, you know, making just a bunch of jewelry and letting the buyer pick is over. They don't have time. You need mm-hmm. to go up there and present them. These are going to be your best sellers. This is what's going to drive volume. This is what's going to drive your unit sales. This is going to drive your dollar sales. So so it's way better to be informed and obviously get the analytics, which um, to answer your question, it really just depends on the client. Sometimes I go through and download it or they provide me with with that information. You also mentioned that trends play 
a major role in the product development process and kind of the advice that you give to your clients. What are some of your favorite ways to stay on top of trends? And you also seem to seem really informed with current news. You mentioned Bloomberg. So you definitely have your finger on the pulse of like what's happening in retail. And I'm curious to know where you get your information or some of your favorite sources of it. Yeah, I think in terms of uh, new source, um, you know, something that's not biased. I really like Bloomberg. Um, I also am constantly on McKenzie Insights. Um, mm-hmm. They have a great app um, and they talk about all different things from different industries. I mean, from retail to analytics to, you know, what industry is going to grow or downtrend, um, everything from automotive to jewelry to fashion. Um, so those, uh, and Bloomberg is also great. Um, I, I read up on those two. And of course, you know, you have your JCK and your national jeweler, but um, just to get a bigger picture, I always like going to Bloomberg and, and McKenzie Insight as, as two that's really resourceful. In terms of trends, I think it's a combination of things. I really enjoy going out there, even though I, I have three children, we try to go out and go into town and check out what's gone in the city, check out what's new, what's exciting. Um, and of course, Go to like uh, 10 trade shows um, is a great way. I mean, I cannot stress the value of meeting people face to face and building relationship because our industry is such a relationship um, business that even though maybe the trade shows are kind of dying, I mean, that's there's no historic report or real stats on how many people are actually walking through the door at JCK or, you know, Centurion. But uh, I do feel that and just it's just gut instinct, but just walking through the show, there is less people attending the show. But mm-hmm. that's still a great, great way to look at trends. Um, you know, I hate to say this because there's such a stress on social media, but you know, I do go through my Instagram and check out what's going on. Um, fashion to me is a huge influence. Um, you know, if let's say next year it's all about being minimalistic, we're, we're minimal, minimal, minimalistic. It's going to distill into jewelry in a, in a variety of ways. You know, um, I think looking at like I'm a huge. I was just glued to the television on Oscar night, which by the way I got to say it was probably one of the best Oscars ever. It was only three. <laughs> it was only three hours in total, and not like four and a half hours where I was falling asleep. But it was uh, a very nicely produced uh, Oscar show this year. I thought, and um, the the jewelry and the fashion really, again, I think. Um, is is very influential in uh, how the jewelry industry plays out. So combination of what's going on, television, movies, just even going out um, and definitely doing trade shows. Those are a couple of things of uh, where, where I find to be trends. But also, I just got to point out that, uh, you know, trends is also very um, subjective, right? So, right. Um, depends on what jewelry designer you're working with, you know, and, and they're people of different tastes. So, you know, we were talking about, if you're talking about big picture trends and, you know, those are that's st- still popular, like stacking rings and stacking bracelets, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Like earring climbers, I think are still hot, but I think trends is also in the eye of the beholder. And I also think you need to apply trends 
to your brand in a way that your brand DNA still is exposed. It's still being um, addressed, if that makes sense. That's really smart. And it kind of leads me into my next question. So since we are a podcast about jewelry marketing, I'm curious to know how does how do merchandising and product development play a role in branding and a brand's overall strategy for marketing? This is huge. I mean, depending on, um, you know, and I'm sure just even outside of being a jewelry designer, a lot of people have worked for companies, whether they're jewelry companies or fashion companies or, you know, working for less sporting goods. I don't, I don't know. Like if you're, if you ever worked in a capacity where there are a variety of teams, all those different departments need to work together. You know, I can sit in my office day in and day out, just looking at numbers and figuring out what is the general trend out there. But then if my marketing team, uh, my branding team is working on totally something different, it's like, oh, you know, like we are uh, focusing this month, this month we're focusing on rings because we're seeing a big, you know, cocktail ring trend. And then I'm in my office like, oh no, you know, bib necklace is really popular right now. Mm -hmm. Like those two things are not going to communicate, (laughs) Um, especially in an omni-channel retail environment where, you know, your like case in point, if you walked into a Target, for example, and you shop at Target online, either channel that you shop at should be exactly the same. So that's something that you should always keep in mind when you're developing your jewelry collection and thinking about the marketing and what you want to say because you know whether it's your website your storefront if you have a storefront and if you have a social media presence all those things need to be consistent all the time this is a good example um, so back to what you're saying about how does marketing play a role with merchandising or product development and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was at Yerman, you know, the iconic cable bracelet, which is their, um, the most famous popular look for the Yermans, um, we, the marketing team did a very interesting case study and is that their, their, the customer that's buying the iconic bracelet, which is actually mostly women. And this was a couple years ago because now it's very popular to just buy for yourself. But you know, let's say even just eight years back, it was more of uh, gifting or men was spying for men, um, more so than women spying for women. So uh, they noticed that the customer that's buying their iconic cable bracelet was actually a lot older, 45 to 55, which everybody was quite shocked by that. It's like, oh, we always thought that that customer was a little bit younger, say like maybe 35 to 45, not 45 to 55, even 60 years old. So from the merchandising planning perspective, we drilled down closer to see what was the price point they're buying it at. And the average price point for for the iconic bracelet uh, which is anywhere from eight millimeters and up. It's, it's a lot chunkier. It was around $2,000 for the average price point. So it made sense that the age range of these women or men buying these bracelets have or, or have more buying power. You know, they have mm-hmm. more money. When our average unit retail for the whole company was around $1,000. So it's, it's almost double than what the, 
the average price point they would spend, whether they're uh, in our store or online. So with that information, that was when we developed a smaller cable bracelet, a smaller millimeter gauge. So it came the three millimeter and the five millimeter, just so we can segment our price point. Mm -hmm. So really understanding how, like, uh, what the marketing team can provide, you know, doing their demographic analogy and marrying that with product development is so important and and also vice versa. Um, I've worked with a online reach uh, online clients. Um, they sell fashion jewelry. Average price point is about a hundred dollars. Where, you know, the product development team was like, I mean, they were just generating like tons of SKUs on a monthly basis. It's like, look, we need to do new, 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 new. You know, this is we got to stay on 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 trend and we got to produce a new collection every two months. Meanwhile, the marketing team is still marketing things that are from a year ago because right. uh, they, they were basically marketing things online that was a year ago, a year ago because they were bestsellers because people kept clicking on a, a specific item and they were going by a very different matrix. They were looking at sales and history, which is great. It's great. But, you know, there's no newness. So mm-hmm. here the marketing team is just going on what is uh, important in their data. And then the, um, the, product development, the product development team was producing tons of styles because they were trying to keep up with trend, but those two weren't talking to each other. So really um, streamlining their process was one of the major things that I helped them with. It's like, hey, there's no need to spin out of control. You know, let's try to marry the both and make sure that we're productive on both sides. So, mm-hmm. so yes, um, communicating with different departments, you know, whether it's branding, marketing, advertising, you know, your, your planning team, your buying team, also important. So at what point in the process should a brand be focused on merchandising and product development? Is it early on? Can it happen later? What's your recommendation for that? So I'm going to try to be very, I guess, more general about this because it really depends on who you're talking with, right? Mm -hmm. Or who you're talking to, who the brand is. But since I think most of your audience are jewelry designers, I'll, I'll answer it from that perspective. I think you don't need to spin your wheels that hard when you start a brand or let's say you're, you're, let's say you're still in the infancy, right? You have a collection, let's say maybe like 50 styles, let's say it's sterling silver, maybe mixed with a little bit of gold, a little bit of gemstones. It's like, you don't need a lot to start out with, um, in terms of creating more. Cause that's a really good question. Uh, creating more when, when to create more, when to launch it. It really depends. I mean, if you're a small designer, listen, your time and your energy and uh, your money, most importantly, is a little strap. So always start out low. I mean, you can even take an existing item or a collection, photograph it differently, and it could look brand new. Um, the idea of new, 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 fresh, fresh, fresh is like, yes, it is important to have newness. But sometimes you can even create additions within a collection without creating a brand new collection. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, I think it's best to really start small. There's no more like, oh, it's fall, so I need to come out with a new fall collection. It's spring, I need to come out with the spring collection. After working in a variety of different capacity in the retail industry, I can't even tell you the markets, as they call it, 
it happens at different times and different seasons for different uh, companies. You know, when I was at Urban, we had four markets. When I was at Macy's, we had two. And then sometimes it depends on uh, if the business was profitable for us to go and have market and do an open to buy. So I would really gauge what um, also what your buyer tells you or who your retailer is that you're working with, because it's one thing to sit there and design or produce jewelry. It's another thing to really listening in uh, to what your customers, your end customers are saying, whether you're online or you're brick and mortar and online, or you're working with all three, you're also working with retailer. It's really listening to who is actually buying your product. What are they saying about it? You know, what if they liked a certain necklace, but they're like, oh, you know, I feel like the chain is a little bit too thin. It's like, those are very good feedback that you have to understand to go further develop your collection, you know, or they really love uh, a certain rank, but they wish it was in this color. Um, so, you know, back to what I was saying, like data is important, but when you're a smaller brand, you really need to listen to your end consumer and developed a uh, new collection from that because, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. You all, you have to, uh, you have to make some money to put back into your product development to create new products. So I would always advise, uh, advise designer to start slow and really kind of just feel out the market. That's really good advice. And I think the same exact advice would apply to a, a new designer with a marketing strategy that they can gauge who their target audience is and then kind of look for that feedback and listen to that feedback. And then if what they're making isn't resonating with who they think the audience is, then they either need to reconsider their product or reconsider their audience. And that seems like it's a process for develop product development and for marketing too in the same way. Less is definitely more. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Do you have any advice about how merchandising and product development should evolve over time? I think it's similar to what I said before, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they're both, um, you know, it's, it's a balance. I feel like it's, it's, you know, you're, you're on a seesaw and it just depends, you know, if you are, you know, I, I think a classic, a good example is, um, Spinelli Kikolin, who is a LA based designer. Mm -hmm. Um, he's famous for his architect architectural stacking rings. I mean, if you look at um, his business, which um, he did come from the uh, luxury sector, he did a variety of things before starting out in the jewelry industry. But just in a matter of six years, he's grown his brand tremendously, really based on just one ring. I mean, it was... It, it took off, you know, um, it was just one classification, which was a ring, but it was very striking. So he didn't have, he didn't even come up with a collection that was like, okay, I need to have like 50 styles of rings. It was just that one ring. And from there, if you look at where his business now, just in a matter of like the last six years or so, he has a full on um, assortment. He has rings, he has earrings, he has bracelets. He had launched bridal last year. Again, it's just you have to scale it accordingly, I think. Um, and, and that's why, you know, don't spin the wheel too much and you don't have to overthink things. You could just work off of one thing or a really small amount of assortment and, and build it from there. Um, and I think as the journey continues, as they're working with, you know, their customers or their retailers, new ideas will come out. But of course, you got to 
incorporate your brand DNA into it so that it doesn't all look the same, which I feel like a lot of jewelry out there does look the same. There's, mm-hmm. um, uh, I mean, there are tons of designers that have a very distinctive look, which I, I, I love, but I feel like nowadays when I sometimes go through my Instagram feed, I think it's one designer when it's somebody else. <laughs> yeah. So, that so happens to me all the time. And I talk about that a lot in what I write about marketing, but yeah, your look is so much a part of your brand DNA, as you mentioned before. Exactly. Or sometimes like, I feel like nowadays designers have to be very proprietary in a sense where, you know what, maybe they have this great idea and it's very um, organic. It, it came from, you know, just came from a space where maybe they saw something and decided to make it always go on a line and check, you know, just educate yourself, make sure that, Oh wait, somebody else has a look already, you know, but, but so important to have your own brand DNA, you know, and, and that's really a big part of your success is that it's making sure that you, it's, it's not cookie cutter. It's not the same. Um, and that it's make sure that it's scalable to the sense where you're also being profitable without overproducing too much inventory. So you've shared so much great advice already, but kind of as a way to wrap up, I'm wondering for brands that are currently trying to improve their approach to merchandising and product development, do you have any additional advice and why should they perhaps consider working with a consultant? And maybe also what should they consider if they are looking for a consultant to help them with that process? I would say in terms of looking for, um, or why they would uh, come to someone like me, for example, as a, like to, to look for help. I would say a lot of the designers that contact me have, like I said, they've either been in the business for about a year or two, or they're they're brand new to the to the point where they don't even have samples. Those are generally a little bit more difficult to work with because we're literally starting from scratch. With those type of designers, um, I do utilize my contractors to help them develop the samples, but I'm more personable in the sense where I rather work with clients that have something for me to work with. So I would recommend if you want to work with me to be at a place where you have you know, you probably have an online presence at this point. It probably could use some help, which is where I come into place. But, um, but you should have some sort of an online presence. You should have, you should be somewhat organized and have uh, something in terms of a pricing sheet or a line uh, line sheet or a lookbook, so that we can work through the process and make sure that um, you are prepared for an open to buy. But you know, not to say that you can't come to me if you don't have any of those things. I mean, I've worked with clients where their pricing is in a notebook so, mm-hmm. and they've had to scan it and I have to put it in an Excel spreadsheet line by line. So oh, um, <laughs> yeah, that's why, that's why my business is like, I always say that it's, it's very customizable. I mean, I've, I've done that to the point where like, yeah, I'm inputting cells and columns and rows. So, um, but hopefully <laughs> you're a little bit further along than that. But, um, you know, what I was mentioning before in the podcast is that 
with designers, because a lot of them also not just design, but they're making their own products. There's only so much time in the day, right? I mean, I think a designer should really focus on what they do best, which is developing beautiful pieces and uh, pulling in their inspiration and planning out their uh, their assortment for you know the next year or so, or how do they want to market it, or who their customer is um, down to where they shop, what what they like to wear, what they. I mean, sometimes I was telling what they even like to eat. I mean, you really need to hone in on your customer these days because, you know, as we know, the the business is shrinking a little bit. So um, we need to continue to be competitive and stay on top of uh, what's going on out there. But, but yeah, I mean, I would say my favorite thing about working with designers is uh, – making sure they're profitable, as I mentioned earlier, working on their pricing and really preparing them to be in front of a buyer, to answer the hard questions and and to be ready to build a relationship that is for the long term. Um, a lot of designers come to me and say like, well, I just want to be in Barney's. And I'm like, okay, I hate to burst your bubble, but um, it's it's small. And I'm not knocking Barney's and I'm not knocking, you know, Saks or Bloomingdale's. Yes, there are luxury department stores that have multiple channels, but wouldn't it be better suited if you get 10 retailers that pay you on time, that uh, has a great relationship with you and you have a great relationship with them and it's a mutual understanding and they want to partner with you to expand your brand. I mean, it's it's not mm-hmm. just about the name, it's, like I said, relationship, making sure you're profitable. But yeah, I would say for the designers, make sure that you have some of these things ready and I would be a good person to help you get from point A to point B. Um, making sure that you are ready um, in the business sense to really sell your line. So to answer your question on what they should look for in a consultant, again, I think it's back to uh, what I mentioned from um, just even looking at trends. I think it's, it's subjective and it's based on where you are, who you are, what your brand looks like. Um, you know, there are a lot of different consultants out there. Um, I think it's great if you have met them before, because at the end of the day, like the most important thing for me, whether it's business sense or personal sense, synergy is so important. It's like, I know right away if I'm going to get along with somebody, it's like, oh, I can actually go out and have dinner with this person. Like I can totally see myself hanging out outside of the work capacity with this Mm -hmm. person. So having a great relationship, having that synergy is so huge. So if you've met a person before, that's very important. Number two, yes, their background is important, but is it applicable to where you are in your brand or who you are as a brand? Because let's say you are a sterling silver jewelry designer, okay? And you found a consultant, but, uh, and, and let's say, let's say your price point as a designer, like you only want to sell direct to a customer, whether it's like at a art fair or at, you know, trunk shows or just sell direct online. Let's say you found a consultant and all of her experience is in luxury and, you know, she's just working uh, with high end designers. It's like, mm, maybe not exactly the right fit. So you always want to also find someone that has a variety of experiences, not just in luxury or, you know, department stores, but someone that have worked with smaller designers, someone that have worked in different channels 
deals within all these different retailers, you know, because that's why I always go back to um, saying how lucky I was to start in the number side of things, because I think creative creativity comes natural to um, not to most people, but like to designers. And like I said, I, I want it to be a fashion designer. So it's always has been a part of me. So making sure you find someone that has both sides, you know, they can understand the creativity, but can also apply the business sense, um, you know, have be, be business savvy, be smart about things, I think um, are very important. It's, it's, it's the perfect marriage, you know, the left side and the right side, making sure that someone has both and that has a similar background to kind of where you want to go in terms of who you want to sell to. So you shared so much helpful information today with our listeners. And I was just wondering if there was anything else that you still wanted to say on the topic of merchandising and product development or any final thoughts that you had that we didn't cover. I can't think of any um, right now, but I do have some news to share. Um, I will be speaking at the American Gem Society um, on April 10th. The name of my seminar is Turning Data into Dollars. Again, don't fall asleep. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's so, amazing. Where is, that, yeah. where is that? That's going to be in Seattle, Washington. Um, AGS is pretty, uh, they're, they're pretty strict. It's, it's members only, but I'm also going to be doing that same seminar in San Diego with Polygon. Uh, Polygon is an online uh, trading platform for uh, manufacturers and, and retailers. So I'm, I'm doing that same seminar, turning data into dollars uh, in San Diego and Seattle, uh, Seattle in April. So if you're, if you happen to be in town, maybe you can catch me. Um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's a way that I can record it as well. So what's the date of the San Diego presentation? The San Diego presentation is going to be the 6th of April. And then Seattle is going to be the 10th of April. And then I actually also just got accepted into HES as a member, uh, which is very exciting. So um, they're one of the, I, I think, the most uh, renowned organization with our industry. I mean, there, there was a bunch of things that I had to do to, to become a member and be vetted for. So, so I'm excited to, to be part of HES as well. Excellent. How else can our listeners find you or get in touch with you if they're interested in speaking to you further? Sure. Um, you can reach me um, uh, via my website. So it's facets, facets, um, consulting.com. So facetsjewelryconsulting.com. Um, you can send me an email there or you can reach me at nan at facetsjewelry. Uh, consulting.com. It's, it's very long, but um, okay. I will also put this information in the show notes if anyone missed that and they don't have to sit with a notebook and uh, spell it out for themselves. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I actually did think of a good advice um, Great. to give to your listeners, which um, I know a lot of them are emerging or new designers. I would always advise um, designers to just go with your heart. Um, if you have a passion, pursue it, um, you know, cause people, one of the things that my designers, um, always ask me is when should I stop? How do I know 
but I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm like, you would know because you wouldn't be doing this right now if it wasn't something that you believe in, Mm -hmm. that you love. And no matter how many consultants or buyers or, you know, people that are even coming up to you, no matter what they say, just listen to your heart, you know, because there are a lot of people out there, not necessarily sometimes trying to break you down even, but people tend to give constructed criticism, which can come off the wrong way. Um, If you believe in it, just trust in it and trust that it'll happen. It might not be today, but, you know, just like me, for example, becoming a consultant, I mean, it was really scary. It was literally jumping and hoping a net will, will appear. And it always does. I think it's just being just, uh, just pushing through and making sure that you stick to your gun and you know what you're talking about, because that means so much more than being wishy-washy. So Mm -hmm. I love that. That's great advice. I'm Larissa, and I want to help you find the best strategy for communicating the magic and wonder of your jewelry brand so you can thrive by doing what you love and filling the world with beauty and creativity. Welcome to the Joy Joya Jewelry Marketing Podcast. It was such a pleasure to be able to talk to Nan and pick her brain about the role of merchandising and product development in the jewelry industry. Be sure to visit facetsjewelryconsulting.com to learn more about Nan and to find out how you can work with her. I look forward to sharing more interviews with you in the future. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For more information about marketing services for your jewelry brand, visit joyjoya.com, where you can download our free ebook, Proven Conversion Strategies for E-Commerce Jewelry Retailers.